Lord, you've called us unto yourself. And you'll never leave us. You'll never forsake us. Father, we thank you that nothing can ever separate us from your love. The love which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Father, tonight we thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Ministering life and comfort and strength and blessing and peace to our lives and to our hearts. Lord, we thank you that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We thank you that we can't go under for going over. And Father, we just thank you that we're yours. And, and we thank you that you bless us tonight with your presence and your peace and your grace. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Honey, thank you so much. I love it when she sings. many of you, how many of you like positive preaching? Let me see your hand. How many of you like positive preaching? How many of you like negative preaching? Let me see your hand. Have, got one over here that likes negative preaching? I suppose it all depends on how you define it, doesn't it? The majority of you say you don't, but um, yeah, one example, it could be many different things, but a pastor friend of mine was approached by a lady in the church, and she probably was a little bit on the religious side. you know what I mean by that? And uh, she came up to the pastor, and she was kind of judgmental and, uh, you know, going to tell the pastor what to do. And, and she said, Pastor, and he said, yes, ma'am. And she said, I need to tell you something. And he said, well, what's that? She said, you don't preach against sin enough. And he thought for a minute, he said, you know, you're, you're probably right. I, I probably don't. Uh, she said, you need to preach against sin more often. And he said, yeah, you know, you're probably right. He said, maybe you could help me. And he said, uh, why don't you just, he said, I'm going to be here a few more minutes. It's just after church. He said, why don't you go sit down over there and just grab a sheet of paper. And he said, uh, make a list of the three sins that you struggle with the most. And, I, and give me that list, and I'm going to preach against those next Sunday. And she goes, well, it's not... I, I. <laughs> See, what she meant was, I want you to preach against everybody else's sins. And, uh, you know, we understand that sin is a, is a topic that, you know, the Bible says we're to avoid it. We know that we can't uh, overcome it in our own strength, but Jesus conquered it for us. And then he shares with us uh, his victory. And, and the Bible teaches that, you know, many, many wonderful things that sin shall not have dominion over you. Uh, we've been set free not only from the <clears throat> penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. And I take sin very seriously. I, I'm not a, uh, you know, preacher that just believes by any stretch that we can just do whatever we want and and uh, that type of thing. I mean, there are consequences to wrong decisions, wrong behavior. God still loves us when we sin, but we can sure mess up our lives and we can hurt other people. But I hope that you don't get up every morning and spend your energy and time thinking about, well, I can't do this and I can't do that. And, you know, if you spend all your time thinking about the things you're not supposed to do, um, how much time do you have to think about the things you are supposed to do? I would much rather see a person focused on doing the will of God uh, than to be focused on not doing the wrong things. 
I understand there's some wrong things we're not supposed to do, but, but I sure would like us to have a positive focus uh, in life. And, um, and, and again, it's a matter of emphasis. But, but what if I were to say to you tonight, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some ideas here uh, about what would be positive and what would be negative. If I came to you tonight and said, tonight I'm going to talk to you about grace, would you think that's positive or negative? I think that's positive, sure. Uh, what if I said, I'm going to talk to you about righteousness? Positive or negative? Positive, absolutely. What if I said, we're going to preach tonight on joy? What if I said, we're going to preach tonight on peace? Healing? Forgiveness? Prosperity? Repentance? How many of you just said that because you'd been saying rip positive all the time? Now, there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people that would think seriously that if I said I'm going to preach about repentance, that basically what I'm going to do is beat you up from the pulpit and tell you. Now, I'm not saying this is the biblical view. I'm just saying this is how some people perceive it. There are some people that think if I said I'm going to preach to you tonight about repentance, they would think, man, this is going to be negative. I'd better put my helmet on and I'd better duck because, man, he's, he's, going to, he's going to tell us we're no good, that we don't pray enough, that we don't, you know, read our Bibles enough, that, you know, we're carnal, that, that it's just basically going to be a lot of accusations of telling you how... You do wrong and you don't do right and, and things of that nature. How many of you know that in some circles at least, that's kind of what repentance is? And, and there are actually some preachers that feel like their job is to make you feel so guilty and so lousy about yourself and so unworthy that, that out of guilt and out of shame and out of condemnation... Uh, even if it's week after week after week that we'll just get you to come down to the front and, you know, you answer every altar call because every week you do something wrong and, and then you have to come down and, you know, carry on and, and that type of thing. You know, instilling a sin consciousness in people is not necessarily what Jesus said to do. He said, preach the gospel. And that's good news. And uh, just telling you you're a no good, low down, unworthy, you know, miserable sinner, that type of thing. I, I'm not really sure that registers real high uh, on the scale of things. But what we're going to talk tonight about is about a combination of grace and repentance. We're going to talk about what repentance is. But before we talk about what repentance is, I think we need to talk about what repentance is not. Because a lot of people have rejected the idea of repentance because of religious interpretations of repentance. There are individuals who live under so much guilt and so much condemnation that they are far more aware of their sin than they are of God's righteousness. And we need to understand that the Bible says God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. That that is our identity, that that is who we are. There was one famous philosopher, theologian, 
uh, Danish, you know, from Denmark, and his name was Kierkegaard, and he was very influential. And somehow he arrived at the conclusion that it was his duty to spend the remainder of his adult life mourning over the sins of his youth. He, he decided that somehow what God wanted him to do was to spend the rest of his adult life looking backward at all of his faults, all of his failings, all of his sins, and, and really just spend the rest of his adult life mourning over the sins of his youth. Now, I'm reading from a gentleman that wrote a book called The Meaning of Repentance, and it says he never realized that when God had removed his sins... As far as the east is from the west, he too should cease to make their consideration the primary occupation of his life. Are your past failings the primary occupation of your life? How much time, how much energy do you spend bemoaning your past mistakes, wallowing in guilt and shame and condemnation over the sins of your past? And, and the same author went on to write, His morbidly morose piety drove many men away from religion. The type of piety epitomized by Kierkegaard keeps a man's attention riveted upon himself, a very small and unworthy preoccupation. Yeah. Let me just say it this way. If you're more focused on yourself and your faults instead of Jesus and His victory, then you've got the wrong preoccupation. I'm not saying we shouldn't be aware of the fact that we have sinned. How many of you know the Bible clearly says all have sinned and all come short of the glory of God? We're all in that boat. We've all missed it. We've all needed mercy and we've all needed forgiveness. But does the New Testament instruct us to focus more on our sin or more on Jesus' righteousness? I think the New Testament clearly instructs us to focus more on who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us rather than on what we did wrong. Now, there was another guy that uh, had gotten saved in his adult life. And um, somehow, because of the teaching that he was exposed to, uh, he had come to... How many of you know the Bible does talk about confessing sins? The Bible does say something about it. We're going to talk about what it says later. But the Bible says something about repentance and confessing sins. And, and somebody somehow that uh, topic was brought up and this guy had been saved. He had been born again about two years as an adult. And, and that topic came up in conversation from somebody else. And he said, yeah, yeah, I'm doing that. And the person said, what, what do you mean you're doing that? He said, yeah, I'm up to about age 12 right now. Now, does that what the Bible mean? Is that what the Bible means when it says we're to confess our sins? That you're supposed to go back and try to remember every sin you ever committed, you know, and try to name them, you know, one by one. Is that what, is that what the Bible teaches? about repentance and confession of sin. I mean, how preoccupied with sin would you be? It almost sounds like you're exalting sin 
more than you're exalting Jesus. You know, I believe our, our assignment is really primarily to worship the Savior that removed our sin. Let me give you just a couple thoughts here about confession of sin. These are just incidental thoughts as we begin this message. Uh, why we do not confess sins. These are wrong reasons to confess sin. Number one, we do not confess our sins so that God will be informed. We do not confess our sin so that God will be informed. When you confess a sin to God, that's not when he found out about it. Like, you did what? Number two, we do not confess our sin so that God will love us again. He didn't quit loving you when you sinned. He, as we talked about the other day, he's loved us with an everlasting love. Never started loving you, will never stop loving you. Nothing you can do to make God love you more. Nothing you can do to make God love you less. You don't confess your sin in order to get God to love you again. He, he loves you, period. And number three, we do not confess our sins in order to earn forgiveness. Confession of sin has nothing to do with earning anything uh, from God. Uh, confession of sin is simply acknowledging to God what He already knows, knowing that He already loves us, not to earn forgiveness, but simply to receive the forgiveness that He's already made available to us. Uh, but while some people, there are people, understand this, and, and I believe it's important to understand the, where, where people are on the spectrum. There are some people, perhaps because of religious training, perhaps they just have a very sensitive uh, nature about them, but they are so hyper-conscientious about confessing sin that they can almost drive themselves crazy by so, being so focused and so dwelling on sin that that becomes the central issue of their life. And people can get even into kind of obsessive, compulsive type issues where man, they're just terrified. You know, if, if, if I die with one unconfessed sin, I'll go to hell. What if I forgot a certain sin? I forgot to confess it. You know... What, what if? And, and they, they spend their whole life introspectively focused on themselves. You know, they're really never busy doing the will of God. They're too busy, you know, constantly looking at themselves under a microscope, trying to find any flaw or any insufficiency because there's such a guilt and shame and sin consciousness. Now, that's people at one end of the spectrum. But did you know there's people at the other end of the spectrum? They have no conscience at all. They're con you know, the Bible talks about people whose conscience is seared. They can, they can do everything wrong in the world and so what? Yeah. Did you see some of the looting that just took place in London? It was really sad. Uh, there was one of the news networks that was interviewing people. And they were interviewing these two young guys. Probably they looked to be about 18 to 20 years old. And you couldn't see them because they had hats on and then they had bandanas covering their face. You could barely see a little slit in their eyes. And uh, they had been out looting. They had been out, you know, breaking through windows and stealing everything. And the news 
newscaster, the news interviewer, said to these young men, said, do you feel any guilt whatsoever? They said, when you lie down at night, does it bother you what you've done? And this one young kid answered and said, not at all. He said, Christmas just came early. I've got a new plasma out of this. Talking about a new high-definition television. No remorse, no guilt, no uh, conscience even in the issue whatsoever. And so you see, we have to be very careful how we teach these things because you've got some people at this end of the spectrum that are so guilty and so shame-ridden. And then you've got people over here at this other end of the spectrum that can just sin blatantly and not feel the least bit of remorse. Now, some people are that way simply because of a seared conscience. But I think other people really get religiously deceived. And let me give you an example of something just, just not terribly long ago. I was with a pastor. This is out on the East Coast. And he asked me, he said, Tony, do you know much about some of this new grace teaching? And I said, well, I've I've taught grace back at Bible school. I've I've taught the subject for years. And I said, so I'm kind of aware of what's going on. And I said, why? He said, I just had a young couple in my office. And uh, he said, this young man, his father goes to our church. He said, now the young couple doesn't. But he said, I knew both of these kids, you know, young kids in their 20s, have, uh, have parents that brought them up in church and all. And he said, I thought I was doing marriage counseling with this young couple. But he said, all of a sudden I realized they're not married. And so he asked the question. He said, now let me ask you this question. Are you married? Are you guys just living together? And the young couple said, oh, we're just living together. And so the pastor said, he wasn't out to, you know, condemn them and beat them up and that type. But he was just trying to understand, you know, where are you guys coming from? So he asked him the question. He said, now, you both have Christian backgrounds. You both, you know, claim to be, you know, committed Christians. He said, do you see any problem? Just ask them the question. Do you see any problem with living together outside of marriage? in the light of everything that the Bible says about marriage. And the young man said, no, we don't have any problem with it at all. He said, "Um, since we found out, and he referenced teaching on grace, he said, since we found out that Jesus already died for all of our sins, past, present, and future, we know that we're already forgiven of anything wrong that we do, So it doesn't matter. My daughter had a situation where she was riding with someone in a vehicle. And this individual accidentally backed into another car. Anybody ever done that? And, ah, you just, you know, hear that chunk and, ah, what I do. And and, and my daughter could tell that, uh, you know, this person driving, her friend, had hit that car pretty good, you know, enough that it was, you you know, the phrase, that's going to leave a mark. (laughs) And so uh, the person, my daughter's thinking, you know, I guess hopefully because of the way we raised her, 
she thought, now this is where you stop and you get out and you leave your phone number and, you know, tell them, hey, I'm sorry, hit your car. Here's my phone number. Here's my insurance agent. Here's the insurance policy number because you're, you know, you did something wrong. And so you're going to make it right. You're going to do the right thing, the responsible thing. Well, instead, this girl just puts it in drive and drives off. And my daughter's sitting there thinking, and she says, um, don't you think you ought to leave some information back there? And the girl says, nah, we're under grace. Now, let me ask you this. Was grace meant to be a cop-out from assuming responsibility? Was grace meant to be an excuse for evading responsibility? And so we want to look, what, what is grace? How does it, do, do, do we still, is repentance, does it still, uh, you know, apply to the Christian? Is there still something that's true about repentance and the confession of sin uh, that is still appropriate for believers? I want you to look in your Bibles at Jude verse 4. There's only one chapter. So typically we don't say Jude chapter 1. There's only one chapter. Jude verse 4. Four, And Jude was the brother of James. The, they were half-brothers to Jesus. They had the same mother, Mary, but they had a different father. Uh, Jesus had several brothers and sisters and all that. Well, they, they all had Mary as their mother, but Joseph was the father of James and Jude and these others. Uh, Jesus had a different father named God. But this is, this is Jesus' half-brother speaking. And he said, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That word lewdness, if you're reading that in the regular King James, it'll say lasciviousness. And that, here's what that word means. It means the lack of moral restraint. The lack of moral restraint. And what that means is, uh, Jude says, certain men, they crept in. So obviously they're creeps. They crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. It's a, it's a, it's a bad thing. It brings condemnation ungodly men who turn the, or distort or twist, they, they take the message of grace and instead of teaching it for what it really says, they turn that message, twist or distort that message into lewdness, lasciviousness, or they communicate that grace is, is the means to a lack of moral restraint. In other words, because God has already forgiven you, because God is so merciful, you can do whatever you want to without fear of consequence, without... Uh, any ramifications, and you'll just be wonderful. Everything will be great. It's okay to live however you want to. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I don't know anybody that teaches that. But I do know there are people that, that will apply it that way. You know, people tend to hear what they want to hear. And especially if something maybe isn't covered as 
thoroughly as perhaps it should, or people just hear part of a message, or uh, just run off with the part they want to uh, apply. I don't know anybody that actually teaches that, but I've known people who have interpreted and applied the message of grace that way. Uh, you know, the Bible teaches, as we said the other night, that we're not saved by works, but we are saved unto good works. Not works of the law, not the Mosaic uh, things of the Old Testament, but good works. Things that the Bible says that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, grace, the message of grace is not a message that frees us from responsibility. The message of grace empowers us to walk in real responsibility. It doesn't excuse us from obedience. It empowers obedience in our life. We said the other night or the other day that, that grace is never divine permission to do wrong. Grace is divine empowerment to do right. Not in our own strength, but in His ability and in His power. And yet there are some people that any preacher who says anything that would tend to communicate obedience or discipline or responsibility, some believers protest and say, I'm not under the law. I'm, I, don't put me under bondage. You know, I've been set free from a religion of do's and don'ts. And things of that nature. And I know do's and don'ts aren't our primary focus. Jesus is our primary focus. But did you know there were some things that Jesus said we were supposed to do? Like love one another. You know, if you love me, keep my commandments. Not talking about the Mosaic commandments. But Jesus said, keep my commandments. So, so you know, we shouldn't just throw out every do and don't in the name of freedom. Freedom is not freedom from obedience. Freedom is freedom unto obedience. Grace is not a cop-out to evade responsibility. As a matter of fact, let me give you maybe a definition of responsibility that you've never thought of. Responsibility is nothing more than our response to His ability. Responsibility is our response to His ability. There's nothing that He ever commands us to do that He will not give us the ability to carry out. His yoke is not heavy. His burden is not uh, grievous to us. John said His commandments are not grievous. Whatever He's commanded us to do, He will empower us to do for His glory and for our benefit. Now let's look at repentance. Let's talk about repentance. Is repentance a negative message? Can we preach repentance without beating people up, condemning people, shaming people, uh, that type of thing, just trying to stir up guilt in their life? Let's define what repentance is. A couple of Greek scholars, Ralph Earl, widely uh, accepted as a Greek scholar, says that the Greek noun for, for repentance, metanoia, literally means a change of mind. That's what repentance means. It means a change of mind. He said, it is more than an emotional sorrow, which too often does not produce any change of life. Rather, it is a change, listen to this, of mind or attitude toward God, toward sin, and toward ourselves. 
The most basic definition of repentance is it is a change of mind. Another great Greek scholar, Joseph H. Thayer, says that repentance, the Greek word, signifies the change of mind of those who have begun, who have begun to abhor their errors and misdeeds and have determined to enter upon a better course of life so that it embraces both a recognition of sin and sorrow for it and a hearty amendment, the tokens and effects of which are good deeds. Remember when John the Baptist said, bring forth fruit worthy of repentance? Repentance isn't just some superficial thing where you say you're sorry but never change. Repentance is a true change of mind which results in a changed life. Now, Rick Renner, many of you know Rick Renner. He has a, an outstanding work called A Light in the Darkness, Seven Messages to Seven Churches. And, and Rick writes this, The word repent comes from the Greek word metanoia, which is a compound of meta and nous, two Greek words. The word meta means to turn, and the word nous means one's mind, intellect, will, frame of thinking, opinion, or general view of life. When the words meta and nous are combined together, the new word depicts a decision to completely change the way one thinks, lives, or behaves. This doesn't describe a temporary emotional sorrow for past actions. Rather, it is a solid intellectual decision to turn about face and take a new direction to completely alter one's life by discarding an old destructive pattern and embracing a new one. True repentance involves a conscious decision both to turn away from sin, selfishness, and rebellion and turn toward God with all of one's heart and mind. It is a complete 180 degree turn in one's thinking and behaving. That's what repentance means. Now, now is, is repentance incompatible with grace? Does God's grace make repentance unnecessary? Or does God's grace make repentance possible? I would argue that God's grace makes repentance possible. A gentleman named William Douglas Chamberlain said this, The Christian faith turns men's faces forward. Repentance is the reorientation of a personality with reference to God and His purpose. He went on to say, repentance looks ahead in hope and anticipation, while remorse and regret looks backwards in shame and forward in fear. Repentance is a great gift. All through the Old Testament, the men of God that God used to lead the nation of Israel would at times lead the nation even in national repentance. 
And when they did, God always responded with mercy, forgiveness, compassion. Uh, and not only that, but the moments when, when a great leader, whether it was Moses, whether it was David, whether it was Solomon, Ezra, Nehemiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Daniel, whenever they would recognize that they were headed in the wrong direction, and with their heart, they would repent. They would alter their thinking and reorient their direction toward God and His ways. Those became defining moments in Israel's history. John the Baptist had a very simple message when he came. Anybody want to venture what his message started with? Repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the Bible says that uh, people, uh, Jerusalem, all Judea and all the region around Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. And he also exhorted his listeners to bear fruits worthy of repentance. Well, question, what would Jesus say? What would Jesus say about the topic of repentance? Let me tell you this. Guess what? the very first sermon that Jesus preached was. Repent. And I want us to look at the particular passage because if you'll listen very carefully, you're about to hear something absolutely amazing. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Jesus said, according to Matthew, this is the first sermon, the first preaching, the first words of proclaiming God's word that ever came out of Jesus' mouth to a congregation, to people. His first sermon message, the first sentence was this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now let's talk about what Jesus did not say. He did not say repent because you're a lousy, miserable group of sinners. Repent because you're evil and God hates you and He just can't stand you. What did Jesus say? He said, repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His message of repentance was not really a negative message. It was a positive message. He said, I want you to turn. I want you to change the way you think. I want you to reorient your life, your attitude toward something wonderful that's on the horizon. Something wonderful that is coming your way. He, see, they were in sin. And he didn't want them to stay preoccupied with the negativity of sin and miss the good thing that was on the horizon. Repent, turn to, to not just turn away from the negative, but turn toward the positive. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And let me give you a statement that I want you to realize that any time God deals with your heart about something you need to get rid of, say no to, a behavior, an attitude that you need to reject and renounce... It's not because God hates you. It's not because God, you know, doesn't like you. It's because He loves you. 
And he wants you to get rid of the thing that would keep your occupation on something negative where, because he has something more positive and wonderful ahead for you. Write this phrase down if you're taking notes. Repentance is prophetic preparation. Repentance is prophetic preparation. Anytime God addresses you about getting rid of something negative in your life, it's because He's wanting to make room in your life for the wonderful thing that He has for you. I'm just going to read something to you. I think this is directly from our book. Repentance does not result from some kind of heavenly slap on the wrist for wrongdoing and then being sent to sit in our corner. Repentance occurs when our hearts and minds are awakened to God's goodness, uh, to God's glorious potential for our lives. In the light of God's goodness and good intentions toward us, we recognize the deficiency of our past perspective and the destructiveness of our former behavior, and we turn from them in order to embrace a new, better, and higher life than we've ever lived before, a life that is being offered us by an amazingly wonderful God. As we go through the Gospels and the New Testament, we find out that, you know, Jesus taught in what we call the Lord's Prayer. Part of what he instructed them to pray was forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. He told the woman taken in adultery, not only did he say, neither do I condemn you, but he also said, go and sin no more. A legalistic preacher only wants to focus on go and sin no more. But a preacher who's kind of on the other end of the spectrum only wants to say, neither does he condemn you. But Jesus didn't say either or. He said both and. It's good. It's imperative. It's important to release people from wrong past behavior and the condemnation associated with it. Neither do I condemn you. But Jesus didn't leave that individual without direction for future living. He not only released her from past condemnation, but he gave her direction for future living. That's the whole counsel of God. Not either or, but both and. Jesus gave the wonderful story of the prodigal son. And when the son, through selfishness and, and self-indulgence and immaturity, had taken his father's inheritance and gone off and squandered it in, in you know, sinful living, that son came to a point where he realized, you know, I'm living a miserable life. And he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to my father. And I'm going to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. That was an attitude of repentance. The one thing that the young man did was he underestimated the depth and the magnitude of the father's love. As we read that entire story of the prodigal son, we see how eager and how desirous the father was to bestow his love and forgiveness upon this erring son long before he ever returned. 
And the father had never stopped loving his son. The father didn't start loving his son when the son returned. The son just positioned himself to receive what the father already had in his heart. Love and forgiveness were awaiting the son, but he had to come back home to enjoy them and experience them. And that son was received not as a hired servant, but he was received as a celebrated son. Now, some people will say, yeah, but all those are really before Jesus died and rose again. So before Jesus died and rose again, yeah, that repentance stuff was necessary. But now that we're born again, we're automatically righteous and we're automatically forgiven for everything. So repentance really doesn't apply after Jesus rose from the dead. Really? Look at Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, verse 47. Repentance is still a New Testament doctrine. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, now you see a version of this in Matthew, you see a version of it in Mark, you see a version of it in Luke. But in Luke chapter 24, verse 47, Jesus commissioned the apostles and said, what did He say? That repentance... And remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Yeah, but that's only for unbelievers. Yeah, unbelievers need to repent, but Christians never need to repent. Really? If you turn over to Revelation chapter 2 and 3, after Jesus had been risen from the dead... This is somewhere in the 90 A.D. period, 100 A.D., somewhere in that time window. The Lord Jesus Christ appeared to John the Apostle. And he gave letters to seven different churches. In Revelation 2.5, to the Christians in Ephesus, he said, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. In Revelation 2.16 to the Christians in Pergamos, he said, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly. Revelation chapter 3, verse 3, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 21, talking about a false prophetess in the church. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Revelation chapter 3, verse 3 to Christians in Sardis Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. And then finally, to the Christians in Laodicea, Revelation 3.19. And I want us to look at this one, Revelation 3.19. Let's look at it on the screen. I want us to read it together. Jesus said to the church at Laodicea, now, you remember, what, what, what was this church like? Was this a, a real spiritual, loving church that really loved God and was it? What do you remember about the Laodiceans? Jesus said, you are lukewarm. He said, I want to just spit you out of my mouth. Now that doesn't sound very loving, does it? But Jesus loved the church at Laodicea, even though he was, he was you know, not pleased with what was going on in that church. He said, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. 
Let's look at how that reads in the Amplified Version. Those whom I dearly and tenderly love, I tell their faults and convict and convince and reprove and chasten. I discipline and instruct them. So be enthusiastic and in earnest and burning with zeal and repent, changing your mind and your attitude. Listen, repentance is not a negative thing that we should run away from. Jesus, he said, I, if, if I repent, if I, if I reprove you, if I correct you, he said, it's not because I hate you and I'm mad at you. It's because I love you. And I don't want to see you go down a destructive path. I want to see you inherit blessing. So Jesus was all for uh, people turning back to him, making whatever adjustments needed to be made so that people could live, live their lives in line with his will and his purpose. One person said, the job of a preacher is to comfort the troubled and to trouble the comfortable. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Real quickly, we're going to go in high gear from here on. Look in your Bibles. Actually, we're going to be in the New Living Translation. Acts chapter 19, verses 18 and 19. Did repentance, did the confession of sin have anything to do with Paul's ministry? Let's look at that. Acts chapter 19. Many who became believers. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. By the way, witchcraft and occult practices were huge in ancient Ephesus. And, and so when people became believers, they didn't continue living the way they used to live. They acknowledged to God that what they had been doing was wrong. They confessed their sinful practices. Look at verse 19. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was several million dollars. That sounds like repentance. And that was believers repenting. That was saying, hey, we're not just making some superficial confession that Jesus is Lord. We're backing it up with our actions. This was faith plus works. Not works in order to get saved, but works because they were saved. They were bringing forth fruits worthy of repentance. They weren't trying to earn their salvation or earn God's love. They had received God's love. And because they had received God's love, they got rid of the junk that uh, was displeasing to him. Look at how Paul described his ministry in Acts chapter 20. Verse 21, Acts chapter 20, verse 21, Paul said that his ministry involved testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance, what? Repentance toward God. Now, we, we've talked some about repentance from sin, but repentance to be really, really, truly repentance is more than just abandoning a bad habit. It's more than a New Year's resolution. Real repentance is turning toward God with all of your heart and all of your life. It, it can involve, and it does involve, a turning away from sin. But I hope 
that you as a believer aren't focused on what you're turning away from. I hope that you as a believer are focused on who you're turning toward. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Healthy repentance is not simply discontinuing certain behaviors or dropping a bad habit. It is a radical awakening toward God. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I, I need to give this to you very quickly. Paul, it, Paul actually wrote four letters to the Corinthians. What we call 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are actually 2 Corinthians and 4 Corinthians. We call them 1 and 2 Corinthians because we don't have the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. If you read 1 Corinthians, what we call 1 Corinthians, you see him referring to a, a, an earlier letter that he wrote them. We don't have that. And when you read second, what we call 2 Corinthians, he refers to another letter that is not 1 Corinthians, which he calls a severe letter. And he, what he actually says, I, don't, I, I wish I could take you through this verse by verse and show you, but I'd keep you too late. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul, early in the book, says, I, I was going to come visit you, but he basically says, I was so mad at you at the time that I would have ripped your heads off. <laughs> now, that may be a little bit rough on the paraphrase. Um, I'll give you a couple references. 2 Corinthians one twenty three, New Living Translation. He says, the reason I didn't return to Corinth was to spare you from a severe rebuke. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 1 in the New Living Translation. So I decided that I would not bring you grief with another painful visit. 2 Corinthians 2 4 in the New Living Translation, I wrote that letter, that's the severe letter, in great anguish with a troubled heart and many tears. I didn't want to grieve you, but I wanted to let you know how much love I have for you. So what we have as there was a third letter that was there where Paul just ripped them big time because he was so upset at certain specific sinful behavior in the church. Now, this is the same Paul that said, we are accepted in the beloved. This is the same Paul that says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. This is the same Paul that said so many outstanding, wonderful things about who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ, but he was addressing sinful behavior. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6, New Living Translation, let's see how did they respond to the severe letter that Paul wrote them, where he really rebuked them harshly. 2 Corinthians 7, 6, he says, But God who encourages those who are discouraged, encouraged us by the coming, by the arrival of Titus. Verse 7. 
Now, however, it is time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. This is a person who is leading a lot of the sin problems in Corinth. Verse 8. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. Keep going. Verse 9. I wrote to you as I did to test you and to see if you would fully comply with my instructions. Verse 10. When you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's... You know what? I'm sorry. We're in the wrong chapter. Let's go to chapter 7. We're in chapter 2. My apologies. That was my mistake. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6. But God who encourages those who are discouraged, encouraged us by the arrival of Titus, verse 7. His presence was a joy, but so was the news he brought of the encouragement he received from you when he told us how much you longed to see me and how sorry you are for what happened and how loyal you are to me. I was filled with joy. Verse 8. I am not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you, though I was sorry at first. For I know that it was painful to you for a little while. See, he must have really ripped him. Now look at verse 10. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I think verse 9. Yeah, I, I got ahead of myself. Now I am glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants His people to have, so you are not harmed by us in any way. Verse 10. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Let's stay right there. Worldly sorrow which lacks repentance. Do you know there are people in some, you know, they just bawl and squall and they come to the altar, oh, and, you know, carry on. And, and it's, it's entirely an emotional experience. There's sorrow, but it doesn't result in repentance. There's no repentance in it. And, and so it's not just a matter of, you know, preaching a sermon and getting people to feel so guilty that they come down and carry on emotionally and all that. You know, emotion may be present, emotion may not be present. What God's looking for is not some emotional display. What God is looking for is true repentance, which is a turning toward God with all of one's heart and all of one's soul. And that involves also, uh, you know, turning away from the sin and embarking on a new direction in life. He says, uh, the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. No regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. And finally, verse 11, just see what this godly sorrow produced in you, such earnestness, such concern to clear yourselves, such indignation, such alarm, such longing to see me, such zeal, and such a readiness to punish wrong. You showed that you have done everything necessary to make things right. And so, no, we don't make anything right. Jesus made it right. Yeah, he made it right legally on the cross. But what he did on the cross should translate at some point 
into a changed lifestyle on our behalf, on our part. We receive the forgiveness legally. And we walk in that forgiveness legally, but at some point it should translate into a life that is lived according to His purpose and word and will. And what had happened is they had gotten totally off track with some kind of wrong sinful behavior in the church. And when Paul addressed it, they did what, it, what was necessary at their, at their level to make things right. Not trying to earn their forgiveness, but because of the forgiveness that was available, they made the adjustments and didn't earn the forgiveness, but they received the forgiveness and then expressed it by setting the course of their life aright based on the grace of God in their life. Grace did not make repentance unnecessary. Grace made repentance possible for them. Real quickly, turn over to 1 John chapter 2. And let's talk about one final thing in closing. And let's talk about confession of sin. There's a teaching today in the church world that says, because Jesus has already died for all of our sins, and because all of our sins are already forgiven, therefore we don't have to confess sins anymore. Because they're already forgiven. And, and often it's portrayed that if you're confessing sin, because there are some people that absolutely have turned confession of sin into kind of a religious works, into kind of a religious ritual. And that's not what we're advocating. But is there still a biblical basis for acknowledging to God that we have missed it? Not to dwell on it, not to wallow in it, not to try to earn forgiveness, but simply because we have a relationship with God, we're honest with Him when we've missed it. And we use that not as a point of shame and condemnation, but as a point of releasing our faith in His ongoing love and His ongoing mercy for our lives. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, John says, My little children... I write these things to you so that you may not sin. That's our, our ultimate goal all the time is not to sin. But how many of you know John knew that we're still human? Even James the Apostle said, you know, we all stumble in many ways. How many of you have needed mercy from God this year? I mean, some point this year. How many of you have needed mercy since lunch? John says, 1 John 2, 1, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Do you know what that word advocate means? It means a defense attorney. It means he doesn't get against us when we sin. He's still for us when we sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Aren't you glad that even when he, we've missed it, he's still on our side. He's still pleading our case. He's still for us. 
But if we back up a little bit, and I say this, and this is so important because there is a teaching in the, in the church world today that Christians don't need to confess sin. And immediately everybody says, what about 1 John 1, 9? And part of this teaching, and maybe you've never heard it. If you've never heard it, you know, that's wonderful. But, but part of this teaching is that, well, 1 John chapter 1 was not written to Christians. It was written to unbelievers. And I don't have time. Our book goes into great detail about that. But just look at the beauty in the New Living Translation of 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. Verse uh, John 1, 6. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. Verse 7. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. I want us to look at that verse for a moment. If we are living in the light. What what does that mean to live in the light? It means that we live in the light that we have. How many of you have had a point in your Christian life where you thought everything was going great? between you and God, and all of a sudden God revealed something to you in your life that you needed to change, and it was really something you'd been doing for a while, but it really, you never really realized before that "Ah, that's something I need to let go of. See, you were walking in the light that you had, but all of a sudden what happened was you got more light. What, what would happen if when you got born again and became a born-again child of God, God gave you a list of 4,752 things in your life that you needed to straighten out? He doesn't do that, does He? How many of you, as you grew spiritually... God addressed an area of your life and you said, wow, Lord, I need to change that. And you prayed and he helped you and you got your mind renewed and, and, and that type of thing. And you overcame that area. And man, you, now you're the king of the world. You've got victory. You're thanking God. And again, not, I don't mean in a condemning fault finding, you know, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. I'm not talking about something to put you down, but, but maybe just the light of God's Word revealed an area where maybe you weren't walking in forgiveness, maybe you weren't walking in kindness, maybe, you know, just some area. And, and did, did that get illuminated to you because God hated you and wanted to put you down and beat you up? No, the Bible says in Hebrews 12, when He chastens us or rebukes us, that He does that so that we can be partakers of His holiness. If you need to go grab your kids, do so. It's 9.01. I'll be done by 9.05. But if you need to grab kids, do that. So God doesn't show us things. The Word doesn't highlight things in our life because He's against us, but because He's for us. And He wants us to grow spiritually. He wants us to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we... Let's go back to 1 John 1, 7 again. If we are living in the light, as God is in the light, we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If you're living in the light, what sin is there to be cleansed of? The ones that you don't know about. Because you're walking in the light. That means you're walking in all the light that you have. 
you're being obedient as far as you know. You're walking in life. So, see, the question is, what happens if you're a three-week-old Christian and there's something you're doing that you don't even know is a sin, but you're walking in the light and you step out and get run over by a car and there's a sin that was in your life, that something that you were doing that you didn't even know was a sin? If you're living in the light that you have, the blood of Jesus automatically cleanses you from all sin. You don't have to be afraid. What if there's some unknown sin? What if there's something I don't know? A sin I can't remember. If we're living in the light, if we're walking in all the light that we have, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. That's grace. 1 John 1.8 if we claim we have no sin, if we get up, oh, I'm infallible, I can't miss it, I never miss it, I've never done anything wrong, I, you know, there's, I'm 100% perfect, uh, we're fooling ourselves. We're not telling ourselves the truth. We're all growing. Look at 1 John 1, 9. But if we confess our sins to Him, that means the ones we know about. Confess doesn't mean to wallow in it. For two months. That word confess, you want to know what it means? It means this. It literally, it's from the Greek uh, compound word homologio, which means to say the same thing. If we say the same thing about our sin that God says about it, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. That word confess also simply means to acknowledge. It means to admit. It means to concede. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. One way that I know that this is absolutely written to a believer is this. A sinner is not saved. Somebody who's not born again is not saved by acknowledging that they've sinned. A sinner is saved by confessing Jesus is Lord. Yeah. Romans 10, 9 and 10 uh, says, If you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe with your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. If we confess our sins, he, if we who? John was writing this. Was he saying, if we unbelievers? Was John an unbeliever? Would he have lumped himself in with us? No, he wasn't an unbeliever. And he wasn't saying, if we unbelieve. He said, if we, who are we? We are the children of God. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. See, this is why to me, repentance is not a negative message. And I don't believe, I don't believe that we can repent without confessing. Because confess means to acknowledge or to admit. How can you repent unless you acknowledge that you need to make a change, that you need to make an adjustment. And when you make that adjustment, the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin and His grace empowers you to be able to follow through on that adjustment. Repentance is a good word. 
because it's prophetic preparation for the fullness of the kingdom of heaven that's in front of you. Repentance means that you don't need to suffer with your own miserable way of doing things from the past, that you get a brand new beginning. And confession is an integral part of repentance. Because I don't think you can repent until you acknowledge that you have a problem and need to change and need to adjust with God's help, by God's grace. Repentance is not a negative message. Repentance is a positive message because it's repentance toward God. That's what Paul preached. It wasn't a beating people over the head to make them feel guilty and shameful and condemned and all that. But Jesus said, as many as I love, I do rebuke. I do chasten them. Why? Because he wants us to be partakers of his holiness. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for your goodness and thank you for your mercy tonight. Thank you that the blood of Jesus is our focus. Thank you that the Lordship of Jesus is over us tonight, His righteousness. Father, I just thank you right now that we are the children of God. I thank you we don't have to do any of this stuff to earn your love or to try to regain your love. I thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. Your love has never left us. And Father, if we've stumbled in darkness, your love hasn't stopped. But Father, I thank you that just Jesus, even as you told several groups of believers in the book of Revelation, you told them to repent. It wasn't because you hated them. It's because you wanted them to make the adjustment to be fully aligned with your will and your purpose for their life. I thank you that we don't have to wallow in shame and guilt and condemnation. I thank you that we can come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and to find grace in time of need. Just all over this place with heads bowed, eyes closed. This is just between you and God.